Let's continue in that attitude of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that as your word is now preached, that you will speak to us by your spirit. Lord, may these not simply be words, but may we hear your voice. May you encourage us to continue to follow you, to have confidence in the gospel and all that you promised to us in Christ. And we pray this for his sake. Amen. How would you feel if you were sitting on a plane about to go off on holiday and the pilot started to speak in that friendly way that they tend to do? Hello, my name's Roger and I'm going to be flying this 747 today. I've never actually flown a plane before, but we all have to start somewhere. I've plenty of experience as a passenger and I've even been in a flight simulator. So I'd like you to sit back, relax, and enjoy your flight with us today. I know we're heading to Italy, but I'm not quite sure of our exact destination, but hopefully we'll get you close to where you hope to be. In contrast, how would you feel if you were sitting on a plane and the pilot said, hello, my name's Mike, and I'm going to be flying this 747 today to Pisa International Airport. My co-pilot, Angela, and I have 30 years flying experience between us, and flying conditions couldn't be better. So I'd like you to sit back, and relax, and enjoy your flight with us today. Which situation would you rather find yourself in? Which pilot would you be more relaxed with? Somehow, I don't think too many of us would be opting for the one who's never flown before and doesn't know exactly where he's going. <clears throat> when we feel we're entrusting our lives to someone, we like to feel that that trust is not misplaced. And that's something that Paul identifies with as he writes to the Christians in Ephesus and the surrounding area. As you probably know, the city of Ephesus was dominated by the temple of Artemis or Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would have been drawn to Ephesus by this, and it majorly influenced this city, which was a hotbed of occult and demonic activity. And let's not forget that this pagan city was a very prosperous place. So if Artemis or Diana was in charge, it seemed like she was doing a good job. As Paul writes to the Christians living in the midst of this, he's aware of how vulnerable they feel. They're very much in the minority. And the cult of uh, Artemis was in direct opposition to Jesus and his claims. And so in the opening chapter of this letter, Paul wants to reassure the Ephesian Christians that they haven't made a big mistake by going against the prevailing beliefs of the day, and that the God in whom they have placed their faith is the only true God, and the one whose ultimate plan for humanity will actually come good. And that's something that we need to hear too. Because we're living in a society that increasingly has less and less time for God. Many of the people that we work with or live beside have very little of any thought of God. They're not necessarily into the occult, but at best they subscribe to a kind of folk religion that 
likes to think as long as you try your best and don't hurt anyone, then you'll be fine in the end, whatever that end might be. When Christians are portrayed in films and TV, they're usually either wet and wimpish or hot-headed bigots or sanctimonious hypocrites. And at best, Christianity is seen simply as one of a number of options for those who want a spiritual dimension in their lives, while others actually may see it as harmful and repressive. We no longer live in a culture which believes in the ultimate power of God. It's not taken for granted that God exists or that he has any right to involve himself in our lives. And so if we're Christians, we're swimming against the tide. We don't believe what most people around us believe. And they won't necessarily always like us for that, especially if we in any way try to suggest that they are maybe the ones who've got it wrong. And there's the temptation to wonder whether we are right. Is God the all-powerful being that we believe him to be? Is it really worth following him? Should we be trying to uphold his standards or should we just go with the flow and blend in with the world around us? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, Paul is praying for the Christians to whom he's writing, asking that God would strengthen and encourage them so that they keep going as Christians. But before he launches into that prayer, just notice what he says in verses 15 and 16, because there he tells the Ephesian Christians that he has never stopped giving thanks for them since he's heard about their faith in Jesus and their love for all their fellow Christians. Now, back in verse 10 of Ephesians 1, Paul states that God's ultimate plan is to bring everything and everyone in heaven and earth together under the headship of Jesus. And as part of that, he's drawing people into his family and making them part of that ultimate plan. And as Paul hears of that happening in the area around Ephesus, he gives thanks, not to the Ephesians. He's not thanking them for becoming Christians, but he's giving thanks to God for demonstrating his sovereign power by adopting these people out of this pagan culture into his family, for making them part of his plan to bring everything together under Christ. And surely that's something we should also do when we hear of people coming to faith. Give thanks to God that he's drawn these people to himself. Because that work of saving people is God's work. And aren't we all too aware of that in the climate that we find ourselves in? We know it's not the most natural thing in the world for people to become Christians. If it was, then how come we're surrounded by so many who aren't? And we're surely conscious of our weakness and inadequacy when it comes to evangelism. We are clearly not the ones who save anyone. So when anyone comes to put their faith in Jesus, it is clearly the work of God, and we ought to give thanks to him for that. But that's not the end of the story. For all Christians, whether they've been a Christian for days or for decades, the prayer that Paul prays at the end of Ephesians 1 remains just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago for the Christians in Ephesus. You'll see from verse 17 that Paul prays that God will give the Ephesian Christians the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know God better. Paul realizes that the Ephesian Christians' confidence will increase as they get to know God better. 
It's like finding out how many years the pilot of your plane has been flying without having an accident. As you get to know more about why someone is worth putting your trust in, so you will be more and more confident that your trust is well-placed. And the way that the Christian gets to know God better is through the work of God's Spirit. So he takes that word of God, applies it to our hearts and lives, shows us more of who God is and what he has done. Now, initially, when we read Paul's prayer in verse 17, it looks like he's praying that the Ephesians will receive something that they don't already have when he prays for them to have this spirit of, of wisdom. And yet in verses 13 and 14, Paul has made it clear that all Christians receive the Holy Spirit when they become Christians. If it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit, we would never become Christians. And there he talks about being marked with a seal. And the word that he uses is the word that's used for a kind of stamp of ownership. So it's like a mark that's branded into an animal to show to whom it belongs. We are, if you like, branded with the Holy Spirit when we become a Christian. And it's not like we then need to kind of be topped up in some way to prove that we really are. So it's not that we need more of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is praying for in verse 17 is that Ephesians, the Ephesians would be enabled by God's Spirit to appreciate to the fullest possible extent how wonderful God is and how amazing what he has done for them is and how wonderful a hope they have. And who of us is going to say that that's not something that we need to pray for ourselves and for our fellow Christians? Who of us is going to claim that we know God as well as we possibly could? And we've nothing left to learn of him. And yet, is it not true, especially perhaps as we go on in our Christian lives, that there can sometimes be a danger that we kind of plateau a bit? Perhaps, dare I say it, we become so preoccupied with other things, or perhaps disillusioned by experiences, or influenced by the secular culture around us, that it almost becomes the case that God is kind of just there in the background. We haven't forgotten about him. We haven't stopped believing in him. But we're not all that excited about him. Or perhaps things have happened to us that we can't understand. We've no clue of what God is doing. And so we wonder if we can know God because his ways seem so hard to fathom. But notice that Paul's prayer is not for a knowledge of God that means we completely understand and always know why every little thing happens the way it does. Obviously, what Paul is praying about here is not the full extent of what it means to know God, but there are three things that he draws out about knowing God in verses 18 and 19, and they're going to be our, our primary focus for the rest of this sermon. And here we get to the first of my three points. Just in case you were panicking, you weren't going to get a three-point sermon this morning. Um, you are. You just got a long introduction. But <clears throat> we've got, there are three things that I want us to understand that Paul is praying for in terms of what knowing God better means. And the first aspect of knowing God better that Paul prays for is that we know the hope to which God has called us. We know the hope to which God has called us. As I've already pointed out, verse 10 of Ephesians 1 tells us what God's master plan is. One day, he's going to bring everything together under the headship of Jesus. One day, he will be 
the undisputed king of the world. Forget Artemis or any of the gods of any other world religions. Jesus is the only one who counts. And one day, everyone will realize that. As we look at the world around us, we see the impact and the influence of many gods and ideologies. And it doesn't look like God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul describes him here, is actually in charge. But that doesn't mean that he's not. What we have to remember is that Jesus himself, while he was on this earth, said, my kingdom is not of this world. God is one day going to bring in his kingdom. But that's not going to happen while we're still living in this world with our finite bodies. So while we long to see more people submitting to Christ, living in accordance with his ways, and knowing the blessing that can come from that in this world, our hope as Christians is not that this world will become perfect. Our hope is not for heaven on earth. Our hope is what God is one day going to do as he brings together everything under Christ. We see a little snapshot of that at times in this life. And as we go on in Ephesians, we'll see how Paul wants to say that the church is, is an example of how everything will eventually come together under Christ. As God brings a motley crew of people all together and shows that they can be united. But it's not that everything is going to happen now. Heaven is not going to come right now. And if we're honest, there's a bit of a tension in all of this for us if we're Christians, because for now, we do live in this world, and God expects us to get on with life in this world. And he does give us evidence of his grace and goodness and the happiness that we can find in the things of this life. And often we pray for bad situations to be turned around, and they are. We pray for healing, and it comes. And it's not wrong to do that. But if those things which bring me pleasure or comfort or security in this life are threatened, and I pray for the situation to be turned around, but it's not, what happens then? If I lose a cherished relationship because of my faith, if someone close to me dies, if my health deteriorates, if I lose my job and I can't afford the lifestyle I've got used to, what happens then? Well, if I know the hope to which God has called me, then my world will not fall apart. I may well be sad, I may well feel pain and distress, but I will be kept by God, secure in the knowledge of what lies ahead, and confident that it is so much better than anything I can know in this world. As we become more and more convinced by God's Spirit of the great hope that is in store for us, then that will surely strengthen us to live in ways that go against the flow of the world around us. Will we be as desperate as the non-Christians around us to have every possible nice experience that we can afford? Will we be posting photos of our children and grandchildren with the caption, family is everything? Will we be constantly trying to protect me time, being good to ourselves because we're worth it? I'm not trying to pretend it's easy to be focused on the promise of a wonderful future because the world around us seems to offer quite a lot just now. 
And just as it was for the Ephesian Christians, so it is for us. As we go on in Ephesians, we'll see Paul giving instructions on Christian living and how we ought to be different from those around us. And there can be a temptation for us as we read these things and as we look at people who don't live this way and yet who seem to have quite a nice life that we can think we're missing out. Imagine for a moment that you have a rich elderly relative who says that they'd like to leave you some money. And they give you two options. You can inherit everything they have if you go and live with them and look after them. Or they'll give you 10,000 pounds, provided you come and see them to get the money off them. 10,000 pounds for one visit seems like a pretty good deal. Especially if your life's going to be a bit restricted for the next few years, having to care for this aging relative. But if you knew that they'd only live for a couple of years and that they would leave you 10 million pounds, would 10,000 seem like such a good deal? We live in a world where everyone is grabbing the 10,000. They want what they can get now. The easy life, the little pleasures. Most of all, they want their freedom. They don't want to have to think about God or about anyone else unless it suits them. But what they're missing out on is better even than a 10 million pound inheritance. And yet they can't see that. But if we are Christians, then we don't have to panic about not having the 10,000 pounds now. Because we have something much better to look forward to. And yet we need to keep being reminded of that, don't we? Knowing God means knowing the hope to which God has called us. But it also secondly means that we know the inheritance we are. The second thing is, knowing God means knowing the inheritance we are. And you didn't mishear me there. Naturally, we'd like to, we think it should be knowing the inheritance we have. We just talked about the future hope and all that we can look forward to. And I've given you an example of an inheritance. And there is a sense in which that is, that is true. But actually, when Paul talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, in verse 18, he's praying that the Ephesian Christians will understand more fully that they are God's inheritance. The idea is, is one that comes through many times in the Bible, which is that God's people are his treasured possession. When this world comes to an end, God is looking forward to having all his people, all those whom he's drawn to himself over all the centuries of history, with him. We will be made perfect through Christ. And God the Father will possess us for all eternity, if you like. And if we really stop to think about this, this is an amazing thing. We are God's inheritance. We are those whom he most desires, in whom he delights, and the people he wants to be with him forever. I dare say that if we were compiling a list of everybody we wanted to be with forever, it mightn't be all that long. And it mightn't even include every Christian that we know. Now, it's not that we want them excluded from heaven, but maybe we'd be silently hoping that they're not too near us, perhaps. <clears throat> and what about the lists that others might be drawing up? How many people's lists do you think you'd be on 
We might have hundreds of Facebook friends or Instagram followers, but would all those people choose to be with us for all eternity? Now, of course, this is all colored by the fact that we and every Christian that we know are still stained by sin. We are not perfect. But it's still incredible, isn't it? That God would take such delight in us that he wants us to be with him forever. And if we grasp the enormity of that, then surely that should be how we think, affect how we think of God and how we view ourselves in relation to him. For a start, we will surely have more of a desire to be the kind of people that God would take delight in. And we'll want to know what pleases him. We'll be studying his word to understand better the kind of behavior that is honoring to God and reflects his nature. And we will be trying, however imperfectly, to become more and more conformed to that. We'll not be begrudging God every little bit of time or money that we give him, but Instead, we'll be thinking, if I'm that special to God, then I want to please him as much as I can. And is it not fair to assume that the more we grasp of what it means for God to have all Christians as his inheritance, so we will see our brothers and sisters in Christ in a different light. I don't mean that they'll never irritate us or disappoint us, but they surely will become that bit more precious to us, won't they? Because we realize how precious they are to God. Can you see, though, that, again, it's not easy to think like this. Just like it's not easy to think that our future hope is what really matters and just live for the here and now. It's hard to think about others and to see them in the way that God does all the time. And that, I think, is why the, the final thing that Paul prays for in these two verses is, is important as well, because the third thing I want us to notice is that part of understanding and knowing God's better is that we know the power of God at work in us. We know the power of God at work in us. Paul wants us to know the hope we have, the inheritance we are, but then the power of God that is at work in us. And that is a power that enables us to understand that hope and see how we are part of that inheritance and how others are part of that inheritance. He doesn't spell out in detail all that that power is to enable us to do, because I think there's, there's more of that comes through as Ephesians goes on, that, that need for God's power to live as the people he wants us to be. And hopefully you'll appreciate that more as this series continues. At this stage, though, Paul simply wants to stress to the Christian that he or she is possessed by God's power. And that power is greater than any other power around. And it's important to know and understand that because the power of other forces in this world can seem great at times. At times, it seems that people are much more ready to believe anything other than the Christian gospel. And when we don't see people flocking through our doors or asking us how they can get right with God, when we see ongoing sin in our own lives and are aware of our many failures, we can doubt the power of God. But just because we don't see it in the ways that we would like to, that doesn't mean that there's no power there. And so Paul reminds us in verse 20 that God's power raised Jesus from the dead. 
and then exalted him to God's right hand in the heavenly realms, where even now he is enjoying supremacy over every other power. And it's also God's power that we see in verses 22 and 23 that has made Christ head of the church. Now, these are big concepts, and we're not going to develop them this morning. But it's important that we at least begin to grasp hold of what Paul is saying. To those who are feeling a bit wobbly as Christians, who maybe are wondering whether they're mad to be trying to follow Jesus in a world where many are not interested in him, he's saying, look at Christ. Look at what God has done with him and for him. And realize that all this power is available to you. God is in ultimate control of this world. And he is going to bring it to an end one day. If you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it looks like you're in the majority today. It looks like the weight of public opinion is on your side. But to go back to the analogy I used at the start, you're actually trying to fly the plane yourself. And can you say with any certainty that you've any idea of the ultimate destination? God knows what he's doing and where this world is heading. So may I challenge you to think about whether it would make a lot more sense to get on board with him. I'm guessing though that most of us would claim that we are on board with God. We're not flying solo. We have seen the power of God at work in us. His Holy Spirit has worked in us to help us to understand who Jesus is and why he, what he offers is so amazing. But we still need to pray for ourselves and for one another that we will know more and more who God is why he can be trusted, and where we are going. Living for him in this world is challenging. But we're not doing it in our own strength. And we're not simply living for this world. May God indeed strengthen us to see with the eyes of faith what he has in store for us. Not just so that we kind of believe in pie in the sky when you die, but actually so that that empowers us to live with a different perspective this coming week. So that people will see as they look at us that we're living in this world, we're part of this world, we're doing what we have to do in this world. But our hope is not all about just this world and what it can offer. And our desire is not just for the here and now but actually to be with God forever, to be known and loved by him, to be his precious inheritance. What an amazing vision that is, isn't it? May that be our vision this week as we seek to live for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope to which you've called us, what you offer us, in Christ. Lord, when we look at ourselves, we are so conflicted at times. We're so, we feel so embattled and um, oppressed at times by the world around us that has so little regard for you. We don't feel very powerful. We don't feel very strong. We don't feel very strong in terms of our own sin and battling with that. And yet, Lord, 
we thank you for this encouragement from your word that you want us to know you better and to know your power at work in us and for that to enable us to live with a different purpose and a different vision. Lord, may people see that in some small measure in us this week, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.